as you know, the District of Columbia is a liberal dominated city. We have some of the worst violent crime in pockets of town, like Chicago, and it's predominantly affecting black Americans. And yet, we have an illegal, illegal gun problem. But somebody like me, a woman like me, who wants to be proficient in a firearm and learn how to use it safely, is prohibited from protecting herself. How is that empowering? It's not. It's, it's, it's saying, we want you to be a sitting duck, Crystal. We want women to be sitting ducks. And I, and I was really perplexed by the reactions that I got from people, my neighbors. Oh, you're taking fire? Why do you want a gun? I'm like, well, the bad guys have the guns. So why is it that in, this, in society, we have, women have been socialized to view guns negatively, that guns are bad? And my grandfather was shot in his dry cleaning business by two intruders. Uh, he was shot in the chest. They were trying to rob him. Um, and he died instantly from a gunshot wound to the chest in 1970. He had a firearm, he had a handgun to protect himself. He went to reach for it and they shot him in cold blood. So I have a lot of context with gun violence. And I, what bothers me is that I did have trepidation when I went to the NRA range. I had trepidation when I handled the firearm, but I had, been I had a great teacher. So that's something I'm gonna have to work over my trepidation, right? But I think if I work through that, I will feel empowered whether or not I ultimately will have a firearm in the home or not. So I share that with you because it's a nice segue into what Kathy, Gabrielle Giffords has said recently about women and firearms. Gabrielle Giffords, as you all know, is uh, a former congresswoman from Arizona who was, um, you know, uh, shot, and I admire that she's turned things, or you know, her life around. So now she's become an advocate that she's very much against guns, even though she is a legal gun owner along with her husband. She started a group recently, and she, she was quoted as saying, I think about a week ago, that dangerous people with guns are a threat to women. Criminals with guns, abusers with guns, stalkers with guns. Well, I would say to Ms. Gifford that, that that could be a statement. Bad people with illegal guns or bad people with guns are a threat to all of us, right? But yet, Democrats want to prevent legal gun ownership because the fact of the matter is that most of the violent crime is not being committed by legal gun owners. So that's just a, a story about how you can empower yourself with a firearm. I want to move on to different ways you, you, that women can empower themselves, like being a mom, like being a blogger or politician, or head of a, a C, you know, CEO of a company. You remember when Ann Romney, when Romney ran for president, and people said that Ann Romney didn't have a real job because she raised five boys? That's a real job. And I think what's awesome is that we allow women to have choices of how they want to be empowered. And being a mom is a real job. My mom was a mom and she devoted most of her career to raising us. Now, another way you can be empowered is to have a career. A good friend of mine told me recently, she said, you know what makes me feel empowered, Crystal? Making my own money. That's a great thing, earning your own money. That's nothing to be ashamed of, so if that's what you wanna do, and I'm not saying these are ways that one excludes the other, but maybe sometime in your life you wanna be a mom, then you wanna be you want to have a career, you want to make money. Because you can't have it all. The women who tell you, like Sheryl Sanford, you should lean in 
Well, guess what? If you lean into your career, you're going to lean out of being a, a, a mom. Because you, you, she is where she is because she pays nannies and all these other people to take care of her children, okay? That's fine, but you can't have it all. Just like my dad didn't have it all. There were some things he missed when we were growing up because he wanted to be, he wanted to empower the family by building a successful business that could, so he could be a provider. He was empowered by being a provider. He, we always had dinner together, but everybody makes sacrifices, okay? You can't have it all. Now, being a politician, I think there's this young woman, Elise Stefanik, you guys probably know her, youngest woman elected to Congress. She's a Republican, I think, from New York. And you know what she said? She said that when she start, said she was going to run for Congress, many people told her, you can't do it, you're too young, right? You're too this and that. She stuck with it, and she said that when she was on the campaign trail, she owned who she was. She became empowered because she owned her youth. She owned the fact she was a woman. So that's another message I have for all of you. Own who you are. You know, I'm black, I'm conservative, I'm from the South. I'm not one of those things, I'm all of those things, and I own all of those things. So that's something that Elise did, she owned it. And she said sometimes she'd be on the campaign trail and men would tell her, we think your skirt's too short. We don't like your pantyhose. We don't like the color pantyhose you're wearing. And she would just smile and kind of shrug it off. She owned who she was, because it wasn't about what she was wearing, right? But also, it wasn't a negative that she liked short skirts or that she was a, a young woman. She owned who she was. It was more about what was in her head. And when she started talking, people got past that. So, and a lot of times I think that women, we're not necessarily taught that we can actually run for president, right? We can run to be, be members of Congress. We don't necessarily always have to work for the candidate. We can be the candidate, another way to be empowered. And finally, blogging. People ask me all the time, well, Crystal, how did you decide to blog and how do you do this? I don't, you know, I don't, there was no method to my madness except that I had something to say and I started to say it. So I would say if that's, you know, if you're political and you want to get your words out and that's something that, that you've always had a passion about, just start writing and I, and never let people tell you no. I think persistence and hard work, there's really no substitute for that. And, and people, I guess that's a nice kind of little in segue into the next topic of pay inequality and women aren't equal to men kind of psychology, right? I think if you really want to do something, you can do it. And it's not about necessarily you're a woman or he's a man. It's about knowing what you want and going for it. And that's where I have a problem with this whole narrative about you know, pay inequality. And I think what's interesting is that, you know, the reality is a lot of women, because we're nurturers at heart, we sometimes want to leave the workforce or maybe we want to work part-time so we can be with our children. Or maybe we just don't want to work as much as men sometimes. I don't have children, but there's sometimes when I just want to take time off from my business to do something else, like learn to, you know, shoot a gun, right? And I don't expect to get paid from my clients for hours I don't work. So women do want to go. They want to be moms. They want to be able to share jobs. So they're not, you're not going to get paid the same as the guy because that's not fair to the guy. And I think Megyn Kelly said something so great that really stuck with me. She did an interview with Charlie Rose, and, she, and Charlie said, what do you think about all this pay inequality? And so Megyn said, look, I'm a journalist, so I don't really weigh in on a lot of these things. She said, but I'm also 
a mom and a wife. And I think I'm all, she said she's all for equality, equality, but not at the expense of bashing men. And I think, wow, that's so true, right? Why do we have to feel empowered by bashing men? And that's really what the so-called women's movement, feminist movement was all about, right? Men are bad. Well, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for men. It's called procreation, guy, girl. They meet, they like each other, they marry, you create babies, right? I mean, so none of us are, we're all in God's world together independent on one another. So I, anyway, I just was like, wow, I, I really like what Megyn Kelly has said. I'm gonna start using that. And that takes us to Jennifer Lawrence. You remember the whole conversation about Hollywood and, and how rich actresses in Hollywood, we should feel sorry for them because they're not getting the millions and upon millions that their male counterparts are getting. So Jennifer Lawrence, you probably know her, a lot of you know her from the Hunger Games and all in American Hustle. She wrote a letter, uh, an essay for um, a newsletter that Lena Dunham has, she's an actress in Hollywood, called the, Lin I don't know, it's just some newsletter thing. So Jennifer Lawrence, about a week and a half ago, admitted in this essay that there is no such thing as pay inequality in Hollywood. She said that when she was in American Hustle, the film that came out a couple years ago, she found out after the fact that she had been paid less than her male counterparts. So she said, I didn't feel sorry for Sony Pictures, or, you know, no, she said, I didn't feel sorry for myself, or, or I wasn't mad at the boys, or Sony Pictures, I was mad at myself for not asking for more money. Fancy that, right? I mean, I, many of you are in the, or have, are working or starting your careers, and you know what I was always told by other people? Ask for what you're worth. Ask for what you're worth. And you don't like the price? Ask for more. And women, there's many studies that show this, we're not good negotiators, right? And you know what Jennifer Lawrence said? As a woman, I, want to be, I wanted to be liked in Hollywood. I didn't want to be viewed as like, she's a, you know what, the bad name that people call us when we're smart businesswomen. She said, I wanted to be liked. She said, but now, I don't need to be liked. I just need to be paid for what I'm worth. And there's another backstory to this. Apparently, the budget for American Hustle was, was very small anyway. And, but, you know, the bottom line, I don't feel sorry for these actresses that are making millions of dollars. Frankly, when the average American makes, like, what, $40,000 a year? You know, I don't feel sorry for them, but I'm just using this as an example how the media, the liberal media, distorted that whole thing. It got blown out of proportion, you know, I think at the Oscars um, when... I forget the woman's name, she accepted, she got Best Actress, um, and she got on her soapbox talking about how she wants women to get paid more. I mean, those guys are so out of touch, it's not even funny. They wouldn't even know pay equality if it smacked them in the face. Um, so, again, it just, I think we have to, if we get through the headlines and what the liberal media wants us to believe, I don't, I'm not, I just don't believe that there's all this raging pay inequality happening in America today. I, I, I don't buy into it. Um, but I will just, I guess, leave you with some, so I've, I've kind of told you about ways you can empower yourselves as women and not fall into any kind of box or narrative. I don't think that you do. And I think what the beautiful thing is about being a conservative woman is I think the sky is open to us. The sky is the limit. We can be any kind of empowered woman we want to be. 
And I would just say, if I had to leave you with some advice, it's probably the advice that, um, that Elise Stefanik um, gave in an interview she did for, I think it was Glamour or um, Cosmopolitan Magazine. She said that when um, she was running for Congress, of course, people told her, you're too young, you're not married, you don't have kids. They even criticized my crazy pattern tights, as I told you. But this is what she said that her father always told her. Do your homework work hard, and work hard. And I would add to that, ask yourself, why not me? No matter what it is that you want to do, I think that's always the question that we need to ask ourselves. Why not me? You know, you want to be a US senator. Why not be president of the United States? Why not be? Why not me? And then president, CEO of a Fortune 500 company, a great mom of maybe a lot of kids. Why not me, right? So that's it. I'll leave you with that. Um, there's many ways to be empowered, but that's just a few. <laughs> Uh, we have a mic for Q&A, so if you want to stick up there for a little bit, we'll do some Q&A. No questions? Thank you. That was wonderful. Um, I'm actually curious, just it's a little bit off topic, but I'm very curious to know what you think of the... Um, the NAACP woman, Rachel something, I'm sure someone can help oh, me. Dolezal. Dolezal. Um, would you like to share some thoughts on her yes, being identifying sure. as black? <laughs> yeah, it's, gosh, I don't even know where to begin, but Rachel Dolezal, I guess I should, we should bet, she was head of a local NAACP chapter, I forget what state, I don't know if anybody remembers, Washington State, and she decided she was going to pretend to be black. Um, in order to, I don't really understand why, to get the job at the NAACP. And then when, when she was exposed, she really never answered why she would do such a, a heinous thing, right? Um, and my reaction to that was I, I wasn't surprised because the NAACP, which it, the, it, was, it was founded you know, before the Civil Rights Movement, well, during the Civil Rights Movement, to help bring equality to blacks, you know, f do freedom rides, do some um, litigation work. You know, it, it was a great organization. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People is the full name. And it's become a shell of its former self. It, the NAACP doesn't fight for equal rights anymore. It, it, it wants equal outcomes. It wants to, like, get behind fake race wars. Um, so I was not shocked that they would allow, they would let somebody like, the, you know, that work for them. And, and my question is like, how does, I, I just don't know how they didn't see through her scam, but I think that that was just an example of the fact that they're really not in the mission of advancing anything for black Americans anymore. Um, you know, and, and as a, as a, as a woman who was, I, I was raised in the South, my parents are products of segregation. They grew up in the segregated, in segregated Richmond, Virginia, where they had to go to separate but unequal schools. Um, my father was the first, one of the first uh, black people to 
integrate, to be allowed to go to the Medical College of Virginia Dental School. My mom sat on the back of the bus at 13 years old going to ballet class, and she had an older white man come up to her and tell her, girl, you need to get out of that seat. My mom was already in the back of the bus. So she looked at the, you know, she's a skinny, scrawny little girl. She looked at him, she said, I'm already in the back of the bus, I'm not getting up. And she said the bus driver looked back in the rearview mirror and just kept driving. So I know a lot about um, I'm probably, you know, unlike many of you, I'm the first generation where my parents didn't have to worry about whether or not I had to, like, go to a separate swimming pool or drink out in a, a different water fountain. So when I look at these kind of antics from people like Rachel Dolezal, who doesn't even understand what it means to be a black American, to then pretend and ride on, what was she, you know, what she was going to pretend about the pain and what black Americans went through. I mean, it's just an affront. And the NAACP should have apologized for that, um, for that deception. Uh, and, you know, I think the difference in where we are in race relations now and how people, how organizations like the NAACP talk about race is that it's not the story I just shared with you. It's a, it's, a, it's a fake manufactured story about the problems affecting black Americans today as opposed to what they were, you know, 40 years ago when all these organizations, there was a real role for them and they were needed to fight for black Americans' rights, like the Urban League, right? Um, so yeah, it's, it, it's just sad and I, and I think it puts a blot on, you know, civil rights history when stuff like that happens. I mean, I laughed because I was like, she's got the craziest hair I've ever seen. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know any black person that has hair like that, but that's another story. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hi, uh, thank you for this wonderful information that you're giving us. How does it feel to be a conservative black woman? Because I kind of identify with you. I, uh, I'm called names also, but not because of racial. Uh, I was born uh, in the Middle East, and I was a Muslim. Okay. And I'm spe I speak against my culture of jihad and, right. uh, uh, you know, what's happening today in the Middle East. It's exploding right. everywhere. And because I speak and expose the truth about my upbringing as a Muslim, I'm called names, especially if I love America and I'm a conservative and I speak against jihad. So I kind of understand conservative blacks are probably having the same problem. So I, w I would like to hear what you sure. can say about that. Yeah, well, I just applaud you. I think we should all applaud you for speaking out against, you know, radical Islam. I mean, I, I want to give you a hand clap because, um, and I think that, you know, our culture wrongly sometimes lumps all Muslim Americans and, you know, so I, I applaud you. I think we need to hear more of those stories and I'm sure you are vilified. Uh, and as am I, um, I get called, when I started blogging, I, I mean, I still get called awful names that people wouldn't even, they would, 
if you know they, they wouldn't kiss their mothers with their mouths or their you know for, for some of the stuff you know well you you know Uncle Tom you're a sellout I get called really nasty names I can't repeat to you I get accused of you know I have awful sexual things said about me on Twitter and emailed to me um, and I have to say when I first started doing this I would call my mom and it would you know make me feel very dejected as I mean it doesn't make you feel good when people are saying these nasty things about you um, but I think you know I know why it's done because black Americans have voted lock stock and barrel for Democrats since President Johnson he he got President Johnson was the first Democrat president to get over 90 percent a little over 90 percent of the black vote and then of course Bre President Barack Obama was I think the second because on average you had Democrats pull after Johnson the majority like 70 to 80 percent of the black vote but Obama got over 94 percent unprecedented right so there's always power in a mob mentality and when people like me and other black conservatives like Alan West or Tim Scott start talking or Mia Love black people it gets them thinking well, why am I throwing my support behind a party that really hasn't done anything for me for, for 50 years, right? But then the mob comes out because the mob feels good. Numbers make the mob feel good. So when one person starts thinking, if, if other black Americans start thinking more like me and we can chip away at that voting block, that weakens political power for Democrats and over, that they wield over black Americans. And so I think that's really, it's as simple as that. It's like, oh, wait, people like Crystal threaten, we don't really know why we're supporting them, but then if people start calling me names, I don't like being called names. So I think what a lot of times happens is many black Americans who are used to voting Democrat, they don't want to be called names. Like Jennifer Lawrence didn't want to be called names, right, by asking for more money. Many black Americans, they find comfort in the mob, right? Oh, they're going to call me names. They're going to say I'm a bad person. I hate black people. I'm self-loathing. Loathing. I hate myself, right? But I think that is changing a little bit. I'm finding when I talk on college campuses, a lot of young black Americans are reevaluating their allegiance, you know, the race's allegiance to the party, I would say. But it's very hard, and it, it's also hard because at the same time, the Republican Party has challenges, I think, in, in becoming a party that is more welcoming to women as well as minorities. I think that that's, that's one of the reasons why Romney had trouble, you know, he, he didn't do well with the black vote, the Hispanic vote, the Asian vote, or women. Now, we can say that's because um, Barack Obama ran a deceptive campaign, but whatever he did, it worked. The lies worked. So we have to start as a party. You know, what troubles me is I go to a lot of fundraiser events in D.C. I'm a member of the D.C. GOP, and I do not see enough women and people of color and young people in the party. And that is a problem. We have to do better. It's incumbent upon all of us women in this room to say, you know, nobody owns the party. Nobody owns any, uh, any political movement. We have to start infiltrating and demand better because otherwise we're not gonna win these national elections with the coalition, the, the fractured coalition we have now. We are not, so.
Um, so you said women often get paid less because we're bad at negotiating. What practical tips could you offer on improving upon this art of negotiation? Sure, great question. Well, I'm, I've had a couple corporate jobs and I've been bad at negotiating. I find out after that that there's somebody else getting a little more money than me, getting parking paid for. So I think you, I've, I've always been taught never accept the first offer, period. Just don't, whether you're a, a consultant or whatever. Always give yourself at least a day, I would even argue several days, to like huddle with, see what the average, you know, see if you can find out, go online, look at what people are getting paid for at that company or the average amount for your experience and position, what kind of benefits the company offers. You can also ask, ask the HR person without being specific, because they're not going to tell you what they're paying somebody else, right? Just say, well, what is the range for this job position? What should I expect? You know, what are you, what's the company paying? I mean, here's what I always say. You can ask, right? They can always say no. So you ask questions, do your homework, huddle with people you trust, mentors, your family, but don't ever accept the first offer, rule of thumb. I, I say always counter. I tell my, I tell young people that I work with and my brothers, always make a counter offer. And then some people say, I mean, I'm guilty of this myself. Oh, I know right away they're gonna say no. Well, you're already coming from a, a position of no, right? In your head of what you're worth. So you've already said, well, I'm not worth that. So I think, and write it down. I'm really guilty of like, you know, even with contractors, if I have to get something done at the house, get three estimates, you know, from plumbers and whatever, but write everything, write your notes down so that when you're talking on the phone with, with the person who's hiring you or, you know, you're in person and you're re renegotiating, you have context, okay, so the first offer was this, then next to the first offer, I think you should get a pencil and paper and write the counter offer what you want. So you have context when you're going back into And then when they give you the counter offer, say, well, I'm going to have to think about this 24 hours. Nobody, you know, any employer should give you that because they want you to accept on the spot because nobody, I think this is interesting. You know, the woman who was head of Sony Pictures, the former head of Sony Pictures who was involved in all those leaked emails, you know, and all that stuff when the Korean, North Korea hacked into their account. She said something that we all know is true. Nobody's going to willingly pay you more money, right? If you can get away, don't you like discounts? I like sales. When I go to a store, I want to get something on sale, right? So that's just, think about an employer has the same philosophy. If they can get you cheap, they're going to get you cheap. If I can get an electrician to do a job for 25% less than the other guy, am I going to get the cheaper guy? Yeah. So. But, but that doesn't mean you have to settle for lesser salary. You just have to ask for more. And don't be afraid. And I, I think it is hard. I don't know. I think it's the way we're socialized as women to be liked. And that's okay. We can be liked and we can be nurturers and we can be, have soft edges and we can want men to compliment us on the way we dress. I do. But we can also fight for, you know, our checks, our paychecks. What are some ways that you would recommend us as women, and specifically I know a lot of us are um, college students, um, how would you recommend that we go about really just bringing a culture of women empowerment, but like true empowerment to campus and to society today? I would say a, a great way to do it, I know many of you are probably already involved in political clubs, but why not start, you know, when I was in college there were all these like feminist groups that I didn't want to have anything to do with. 
and I had to take a, a feminist criticism seminar my senior year. I was an English major, it was an honors class, and, and the teacher, professor, had us reading all this lesbian literature, and I'm like, why am I reading all this? I mean, I remember thinking to myself, right? I don't want to read this. This I want to be talking about, you know, Shakespeare, D.H. Lawrence, Chaucer. You know, I, I can look at things critically, but why are we being force-fed all this crap? So we, I come to find, and it was like deconstructing male writers, feminist criticism, which is basically male bashing. Men are bad. That's what it was, right? So at the end of the seminar, the professor tells us that she's a lesbian. I'm like, really? Like, I probably could have figured that out. And so uh, that's why, and I went to Georgetown University, okay? I mean, and I was like, I had never had, up until that point, I had great English professors. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you should have told us what your agenda was, your political agenda at the beginning of this class. And then I would have said, I don't want to take it. I mean, but, but the problem is Georgetown only gave us one choice for honors majors that semester. So the second semester, I actually did not take the honors class. But anyway, I share that story with you because I would say what, what would be really cool for me to see is an alternative to these male bashing so-called feminist clubs on campus. Why couldn't you, you know, you guys start some of, like, I don't know what you call it, but why, you could call it something as simple as, you know, you know, women empowerment groups. I don't know. You guys are good at thinking of names, right? And bringing in speakers on your campus, because many of you have speakers bureaus. So you could set it up as a club and bring in the kind of women speakers and empower, you know, not just around um, politics, but around maybe, you know, writers, people like Megyn Kelly, I don't, you know, business, so that you can get speakers in to share their stories with you and ways to get jobs or whatever, you know? I think that, I would love to see some kind of new movement on college campuses of true women's clubs that are empowering. Um, so I think that's one way to do it. I think starting newspapers, um, you know, I, I would like to see a bigger proliferation of college campus publications that are run by women and give women a voice to talk about economics, to talk about politics, to talk about cooking, decorating, why not? I mean, why do we have to be, why do we have to fit into some mold, mold that others have created for us? So, you, you know, and with electronic media now, you don't even have to, everything's electronic. I mean, when I was at Georgetown, we printed the Hoya. I, I don't, maybe they still might print it, but I'm sure it's just available online now, you know? So, you know, writing is a powerful tool and also infiltrating I mean, I, I guess it's been so long since I've been on college, at a college campus, but you have, like, you can run for president of things, right? Class, I guess student body organizations, right? Do that. I mean, we, we have to make our presence known beyond, like, you know, when, when I was at Georgetown, the feminist club was like, we're not going to shave our, our underarms and our legs and... <laughs> it's just not empowering to me. I mean, you don't have to do any of that. That's a personal choice, I get it, personal hygiene. But really, you know, I was trying to get dates <laughs> on my time when I wasn't studying at the library at Georgetown. I wasn't trying to go look, you know, looking like Grizzly Adams. <laughs> so I think that answers your question in a, in a fun, you know, be creative. And, and I just think, you know, what the great thing is about women, we don't look, we're not men. And I, I don't want to be a man, okay? Um, I'm happy with what I'm, I'm, God gave me. And uh, I think that's a beautiful thing. We should celebrate 
our uniqueness, our, you know, the fact that that we're feminine, and that's a good thing. And you know, I don't I don't necessarily think that we should be army rangers. So I'm I'm going to be curious to see how that all turns out. But that's another story. <laughs> Thank you. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have. But thank you so much for being yeah, with us, Crystal. We really appreciated you. it.